may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Rich Top. Um, we have been going through the book of Acts, and uh, so far it's been going pretty well. Um, we, we started off seeing the resurrected Jesus uh, tell the disciples they need to wait for the Holy Spirit before they do anything, and then Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, and then the Holy Spirit shows up at Pentecost and converts 3,000 people. They're gathered in a really thriving church. Um, that really thriving church is both having a, a really great experience as a community, but also they're having a very effective ministry and mission out um, in the world where people are coming to faith on a regular basis, daily. People are, are becoming Christians and joining in the, uh, to the church. Um, it's not without its problems, and, uh, but even those problems seem to be kind of catalysts for good things, right? Like um, there's like a, a sort of purging of church corruption when uh, Ananias and Sapphira uh, drop dead after they lie to church leadership, and um, it causes the, the, the church and the community to kind of sober up about the seriousness of this mission that the church is on, and, and more people become Christians and join the church. And uh, then, then we have some, you know, more persecution um, where they actually uh, do more than just take the leaders of the church in and interrogate them and warn them, but they actually flog them. And it seems to kind of fan the flame of evangelism and more people hear the gospel and become Christians. And, and then last week we saw a, a, a problem within the church where some of the widows that were more on the Greek side culturally were feeling that they weren't, they weren't getting the same treatment as some of the um, more he Hebraic Jews. Um, and uh, so it was a very, very serious problem. And there's a lot of potential for a church split and a lot of hurt feelings. And the apostles lead well, the congregation responds well, and the result is more people become Christians. <laughs> Even... Uh, people that, even Jewish priests, it says, are, are becoming Christians. So it's, it's going really awesome. I mean, I, I don't think you could give a better, like, hey, here's our church report, how things are going. Um, and at this juncture in the narrative of, of the book of Acts, uh, the unthinkable happens. Uh, a very well-loved, well-known leader in the church is martyred. And his name is Stephen. And this is the first Christian martyr, a martyr some, someone killed because of their faith. And we heard about Stephen in last week's passage because he was one of the seven that were chosen to be like the deacons of the church to help feed the widows. And uh, in that list of people that were chosen for that role back in Acts 6 verse 5, it says what, what they said pleased the whole gathering and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and, and it goes on to, to list the rest of the, um, the, the, the deacons. But notice that Stephen's getting a little more uh, description there, that he's full of the Holy Spirit, he's full of faith, and all of those seven were full of the Spirit. That was one of the qualifications that the apostles asked uh, the congregation to make sure that they were uh, exhibiting um, but he, Luke makes special uh, effort to show that Stephen was really full of the Spirit, right? Like, 
attentive to the Spirit, what the Spirit is doing in him and around him, in the church, out in the world, uh, and that he's full of faith, that he's willing to, to take that initiation that he experiences from the Holy Spirit and say yes to it. That's, that's my understanding of what that means, to be full of Spirit and full of faith. That he's attentive to the Spirit, that means you're full of the Spirit, and full of faith, meaning I will say yes to the Spirit. Right? I'm not just attentive to it, I will say yes to the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit um, initiates. And, and this is a great, I think, little summary of what it's like to be a Christian. Right? Being a Christian is not merely believing doctrines or following moral rules. Uh, it, it, it's not less than that, but it's much more than that. It's a relational kind of experience. And you're literally relating with the living God. And the Holy Spirit is initiating with you and you are uh, saying yes to the Holy Spirit. Now this living, being full of the Spirit and full of faith gets uh, Stephen in some really hot water, right? Um, Acts 6, verse 8, uh, Stephen, full of grace and power, or he's just, there he is full of some more things, right? Was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those with Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So he was feeding widows, but he ends up doing a lot of other things too as he says yes to the initiation of the Holy Spirit. Um, and he really has an exceptional ministry, and it looks a lot like the apostles' ministry, right? Uh, where he is doing these signs and wonders. Um, he is full of grace. He's full of power. Uh, this is all Luke's descriptions, right? He's, he's the narrator. He's telling what he's, he's seeing as he watches Stephen um, perform his ministry. And people are certainly impressed, right? They're, they're interested, they're intrigued, they're drawn to Stephen to know more. What, where is this coming from? Um, but obviously, there's also those that are not impressed. They are very upset. They are very upset. And so they attempt to, it says, debate him. Um, so now, this guy that's doing widow feeding and he's doing miraculous signs. We don't know what those are. I mean, probably some kind of healing or exorcisms, things that, that the apostles were, were doing. Um, now he's got to talk, right? And he's got to do it on his feet. And he does, he does very well, right? And Luke tells us that the Spirit gave him the wisdom that he needed to, to, to debate. And that they couldn't stand against him. They couldn't withstand the wisdom that was coming uh, from Stephen who is being given the wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Um, now, we've seen opposition in the book of Acts up to this point, but, it, but it's been fairly measured. We've seen, like, scary interrogation and stern warning. Uh, then we saw uh, scary interrogation and flogging and stern warning. So you kind of see this little, uh, you know, upping the, the ante there with the, the persecution and it doesn't seem to be working. 
And so these that are opposing the church are getting frustrated because they've, they've tried to scare them into shutting up. They've tried to beat them into shutting up, and they just won't shut up. They just keep talking and talking and talking about Jesus, and more and more people are responding in faith. So they decide if you can't beat them, that you conspire to falsely accuse them. And this is what they attempt to do against Stephen. So verse 11 of Acts 6 says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, and they seized him, and they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. When human beings perceive that their identity is being threatened, they will do nearly anything. Um, when their identity as it's tied to their family or their community or their culture or their political party or their religion or their race is being threatened. And all those things are in this threat that they're feeling in Acts. All those things, family, community, religion, race, all of it is wrapped up in their experience of the Jewish religion. And so anything that's said in opposition to that, it's a threat to all those facets of their identities. And, I mean, we're fairly used to seeing this kind of behavior in our own culture. From the lowest internet troll to the most powerful politician, people are willing to lie in order to protect themselves, to protect their group, uh, truth becomes the casualty of that kind of fear-driven uh, lying. And there's a sense, and we, again, we're, it's, it's interesting that we're seeing this in our culture that it, it feels like, well, that's okay because it's an existential threat, right? My existence is being threatened so I can lie in order to protect my culture, my political party, my religion, my race, whatever the identity is. And so they're feeling this existential threat. Stephen and the church are threatening their existence. And so they're willing to do anything to shut him up. So they drag Stephen into court. They lie about the things that he said. They get false witnesses to testify against uh, Stephen. Seem like there's some kind of a commandment about don't give a false witness. Anyway, I, it's in there somewhere. Um, and, and this is the same way that they got Jesus. This is not new, right? Uh, Matthew 26, we read about Jesus' uh, quote-unquote hearing in uh, verse 59, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. And at last, two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. It's the same song, second verse. 
Now, they need two false witnesses to say the same thing because they need to have a corroboration of the testimony. It's like in our court system, right? Just, you have just one witness, eh, that's not that strong a case. You have two witnesses that corroborate, then you've got a case. So something similar going on here, except these are false witnesses, so they're having a hard time getting their story straight. This is what happened with Jesus. This is what's happening to Stephen. And eventually they bring in enough false witnesses that they get two that are uh, willing to, are able to corroborate. Now, meanwhile, what's Stephen doing? So verse 15, Acts 6, 15, uh, verse 15, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Uh, Stephen seems to be doing fine. He seems like he's doing pretty good, right? He's not sweating drops of blood. He's not saying, take this cup away from me. Uh, he's not recanting his Christian faith. He seems like he's at peace. He's not even defending himself. He's just just sitting there with the face of an angel. I don't know exactly what that means. I just think he he looks like he's doing well, like he's at peace in this moment. Now, eventually they give Stephen a chance to speak for himself. Also part of their kind of court system is that they would be able to give a defense for themselves. So they're trying to follow the protocol in some level, but... (laughs) It's obviously uh, not really a true uh, hearing. But they do ask in uh, Acts 7, verse 1, the high priest says, are these things so? And then Stephen says. And Stephen gives the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And we're going to skip that because it would take me, you know, four hours to go through that. I was thinking, maybe we could just make a sermon series out of Stephen's sermon. So maybe next summer... We'll do Stephen's entire sermon for a whole summer. Um, it's a trip through the Old Testament. So it's a great way to kind of get an overview of the Old Testament. Um, and it reads like the who's who of the Old Testament. And, and the people he's mentioning are all the, the, the people that are near and dear to these religious leaders' hearts. And then at the end of that, he's his, his working his way through the Old Testament, this is the big finish. Okay, now we're jumping to Acts 6, verse 51. So we're just going to look at the, that kind of closing statement here. Acts 7, verse 51, he says, You stiff-necked people. Now, now if you guys, if you've ever read any of the Old Testament, you know that's a, that's a mosaic phrase. Sometimes the prophets use this phrase. It means you're rebellious. If your ne- neck is stick, uh, stiff, it means you won't bow down to God. You are rebellious, right? And so he's using this terminology that's from Moses. And he says, uncircumcised in heart and ears. That's, that's also, he's, he's drawing from the Old Testament. He's drawing uh, specifically from Moses. Deuteronomy is, is one of the places you can find that. And then he says, as you're, uh, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now remember what the the accusations were, that he was speaking against Moses and against the temple. (laughs) And now he's saying, no, actually Moses is speaking against you, religious leaders. It's quite clever, right? 
He really is defending himself, but he's using Scripture to do that. And he's showing them how in the wrong they are, that, that Moses himself is speaking against them. Jesus did some similar things uh, in the gospel. So this guy who's been feeding widows, ministering to others through miraculous signs and wonders, he's also been reading his Bible, right? Like, you, if you go back this afternoon, you read through that sermon. Like, the boy knows his Bible. And he's not, like, quoting particular verses. He's just oozing out of him. He, he's just, like, going, doing this flyover of the entire Old Testament. And it's, it's quite amazing. And obviously, the Spirit is helping him to do that. And so he is full of the Spirit. He is full of faith. He's full of power, Luke said. He's full of grace. He's full of wisdom. And he's full of the word. And all of this is, is, is being empowered by uh, the Holy Spirit. Now, the response that Stephen gets is not, quote unquote, a good response. Um, and Peter actually said some similar things to uh, the folks in Jerusalem. Um, back in Acts chapter 2, the end of his big sermon was, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So that's what happened at the end of Peter's sermon. That is not what happens at the end of Stephen's sermon. Right? Peter gets 3,000 converts and gets to start the church. And it's really amazing. Um, Stephen gets this, Acts 7, verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. They get so angry. He, he gives them the gospel, and they just get angrier. And this is, this is what happens when the explicit gospel is given. It, it's going to get either an acceptance or a rejection. There's, there, there's no way around this. Um, it's, it's not, a, there's no way to give the explicit gospel, and I'll, I'll talk more about what that means, and not have an acceptance or rejection. There's no way to respond to the explicit gospel as, eh, it's not that big a deal. I'm apathetic. I'm tepid, right? Um, I remember having a back and forth with a guy who, he was like, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, cool. You do too. And, you know, we're, we're connecting. We've got some common ground. And, um, and, and so I'm, I'm kind of getting, maybe we're not talking about the same Jesus, the same Christianity. And um, I say, well, what, is it, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? And he said, well, Jesus, he shows us how to love people. And so we should be loving. And I'm like, yeah. So we're on the same page, you know, and it was just like, it's like a love fest, man. We're on the same page, and I follow Jesus, and you follow Jesus. And then I said, well, what are your thoughts about the cross? And a little bit of silence, and he like, well, the cross was the most loving act that Jesus could have ever performed. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're, <laughs> that's absolutely true. Um, and so it just kept, we just kept common ground, common ground, and it was a great conversation. And, and then I said, but, but do you believe that Jesus was dying in your place so that you could be forgiven of your sin? And he was like, no, but that's okay if you believe that. But I don't believe that. 
And I was like, yeah, but it's very important that you believe that. Because if you don't believe that, you are separated from God now and forever. And then the conversation was not a fun conversation. <laughs> and he's like, so you're saying to me, if I don't believe that Jesus died for me in place of, of me for my sin, then I'm going to hell. I'm like, I am saying that. So that's what I mean. When you get to the explicit gospel, <laughs> it's either going to be gladly accepted or it's going to be rejected. Right? And, and, and this is what you see in the book of Acts. You see glad acceptance. For instance, the 3,000 that respond in faith after Peter gives his sermon, or you see rejection. Now, they don't always stone you to death with rocks, but you get what I'm saying. It's an acceptance or it's a rejection, and these guys are livid. Um, this was true of Jesus' ministry as well. There was acceptance or there was rejection. You, you, you couldn't encounter Jesus and just go, eh. I'm just, I'm just kind of lukewarm on you, you know. You, you just don't, you don't see that. You don't see that. If they understand truly who Jesus is and what he is about. Now, it doesn't mean Christians should be jerks. They shouldn't. They should absolutely be wise in the way that they talk with people and express gospel truth. Um, but know that every time you're sharing the explicit gospel, it is going to confront some of the ideologies of every culture you, you know, communicate that gospel to. I don't care what country you're in, what culture you're talking to, the explicit gospel is going to confront some of the ideologies in that culture. Now, it's going to affirm some of the ideologies of that culture, and we want to do that too. We want to look at things and go, hey, that's good, right? Oh, you're, you know, you'll, you see later in Acts when Paul is walking around looking at, you know, all the Greek gods, and he's like, I see you're a religious people. Thumbs up. Good job. But there's only one God. Eh, <laughs> they weren't that excited about that part, right? So, so you're affirming some things in the culture, but there's always going to be some confrontation of some of the ideologies. And in our culture, saying Jesus is the only way to God, that's, 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 that's very troubling to a lot of people. Right? To, to say that all human beings are sinners and separated from God and must put their faith in Jesus in order to be reconciled to God. That's, that's troubling. It's offensive. Um, that those who receive salvation from Jesus should also respond by submitting to Christ as Lord in every, way, every part of their lives. That's hard. <laughs> that's a hard word for our culture. Right? And so as, as we... Uh, press upon, folks, those truths. Again, with wisdom, with love, with grace, but with truth, we're going to get acceptance. We're going to get rejection. And Stephen's getting rejection in a, in a real uh, pro profound way. And as he's experiencing this anger and the gnashing of teeth, uh, he has a vision. He has a vision. And this is what we see in, in verse 55. It says, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, people experience visions of the ascended Christ three times in the book of Acts. 
And this is the second time, right here. And this is important for the early church, and it's important for us. We need to be beholding Christ as the ascended Christ at the right hand of the Father. This is, this is very important. And so Stephen gets a vision while everything is escalating around him, and he's about to be stoned to death. Um, he sees the glory of the Father, but he's not seeing the Father in physical form. The Father never appears in physical form, and that's because the Father is spirit. Holy Spirit doesn't appear in physical form. The Holy Spirit is spirit. That makes sense. But Jesus does appear in physical form. Jesus became a human, right? He added a human nature to his divine nature. This is what we call the incarnation. Right? You get chili con carne, you're getting meat with that, okay? So he's got a human nature, he's got a divine nature, and you can see him. And, and so when Stephen looks in, up into to, to heaven, it's sort, it's sort of like breaking through the veil and getting to see a little glimpse and he's saying this both to, to those that are his accusers, but also to the church who's looking on at this experience. And this is a, a very, very troubling experience for the church because this is the first one of theirs to be killed for their faith. And there will be hundreds of thousands of martyrs throughout church history. There'll be some today. And the church needed, they needed to see this. They needed to, to, as they watched their first one go down, to see what he was seeing in, in heaven and what was going to welcome him in heaven after he died. And so he looks, he looks up to heaven and he gets this vision. And he says, hey, guys, it's Jesus. He's at the right hand of the Father. He, he has authority over heaven and earth. It's true. Even though I'm about to go down, this is true. And, and it, it's such a powerful vision for the church. And the, 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 the church has seen as the ascension of Jesus already. So remember Acts chapter 1 when the apostles see Jesus ascending? Acts 1 verse 8 is that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and the end of the earth. So Jesus kind of gives them that commission. And then in, in verse 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And so they needed to see that. And partly what, what, why they needed to see that was to understand that Jesus wasn't just king over Israel, that Jesus was a cosmic king over the universe. And this is why he's like, you're going to be my witnesses over the whole planet. And let me show you how you're going to do that. I'm going to go be king over the universe, right? And this is consistent with what he says in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, right? He says, and Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's not kidding. And that ascension proves it. <laughs> he is the king of the universe. And then, he, of course, tells them, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. He's letting them know, I'm not just king of Israel. I'm king of the universe, and I want you to go and make disciples of the nations. Now, the religious leaders, they are not having it. Right? Stephen's got the, the face of an angel. He gives this amazing sermon that gives them the gospel in a really contextual, powerful way, and they're not having it. And verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears. They rushed together at him. 
Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. So the church hasn't seen an escalation like this, right? They've seen scary interrogations, they've seen some fogging, and now they're seeing a brutal death. Not just a death, a brutal death. Um, Notice they're taking him outside the camp, outside the city. That's because they don't want to defile the city. So they're still following like religious protocol in a way. It's really, yeah, it's, it's, it's dark. Um, up to this point, they've, they've kept, the religious leaders have kept a kind of de- couple of degrees of separation from getting their hands dirty. Like with Jesus, they don't kill Jesus. They turn Jesus over to the Romans and let the Romans kill him. And, and the flogging is like them getting their toe in the water. Like, okay, we're going to get our hands a little dirty. But here, it's ugly. It is judge, jury, and executioner, all rolled into one. And and it's in part, it's been ramping up to this because so many people have become Christians in the city, and they can just see it moving and moving and moving and expanding and advancing, and they just don't know what to do to stop it. And so they kill Stephen. Now, again, verse 59, Stephen, (laughs) he seems like he's doing pretty good. As they're stoning Stephen, he calls out, Lord, receive, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Luke is a great writer. I love love his writing. It's It's so compelling. He's doing this back and forth where he's describing the religious leaders and how they're acting, and he's describing Stephen, and it's just back and forth, back and forth. So think about the plot line and how it's unfolding, right? Stephen does great wonders and signs among the people, and the opponents rise up and dispute him. Uh, Stephen answers with spirit-empowered wisdom. The, The leaders seize Stephen, bring him to court, set up false witnesses to wrongly accuse him. Stephen exhibits the face of an angel. Then they ask Stephen to answer false allegations. Stephen speaks spirit-inspired truth about Jesus. The the leaders grind their teeth in rage. Uh, Stephen sees a vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. The religious leaders scream. They stop their ears. They drag Stephen outside the city, and they stone him. Stephen cries out, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. Lord, do not hold a sin against them, and falls asleep. And the religious leaders stone Stephen to death, and they unleash persecution on the entire church. We read about the escalation of the persecution in chapter 8. So now we're in chapter 8. And, and Saul approved of his execution. That's the second mention of some guy named Saul. We'll, we'll pick him up later. Um, There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This thing reads like a binge-worthy Netflix show. He's, he's giving little hints. You know when you watch a movie and you don't pick up on all the little setups that are paid off later on in the movie, and then you watch the movie again and you go, ah, 
I, 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 didn't, I didn't see that. I watched The Prestige the other, other day on the plane. There's so many setups and payoffs, and it was like, oh, how did I miss that, right? And, and the book of Acts is like this. You read the first time, and then you go back, and you go, oh, gosh, that, that Saul guy. Yeah, that's, that's kind of an important part of the, of the plot, but I, I, won't, I won't spoil it for you. Um, there, there's all these little setups, and um, he's been, Luke has been showing all along how difficult it is for the church, but then how those difficulties are used by God to uh, further draw the church together in community and expand their mission out in the world. This is a, a reoccurring thread over and over and over again. But this seems like the worst possible scenario when you, when you look at it at the surface, that people are being scared, they're being scattered. But even in this passage, we get a hint that King Jesus is doing something. He's, he's, he's getting something um, done. But, but think about the, the difficulty of this moment for the early church. I mean, think about if, if we had someone who was unjustly tried and brutally killed because of their faith. How would that affect the conversation over at the coffee bar over there? Right? Hey, did you hear so-and-so got clubbed to death by APD after sharing his faith at work? I mean, this is basically what's going on here. State-sponsored persecution with using lethal force. And, and they're experiencing this for the first time. Luke lets us know that these, these grown men who were tasked with burying a victim of stoning, they made a great lament. These, great, these, these grown men, are, they're crying like babies over a man that they loved who was brutally murdered for his faith. It, this, again, on the surface, seems like a worst-case um, scenario because not only was Stephen killed brutally, but all hell is breaking loose on the church. Now it's not just bring the leaders in and give them a little flogging. It's not even bring the leaders in and kill the leaders. It's persecution against anyone who's in the church. Now Saul is going house to house. He, he's looking for Christians and willing to go house to house with lethal force to put them in prison. So this, this is a major shift in the book of Acts. These are, this is a dark, dark moment. But Luke is hinting, again, that King Jesus, he's, he's still in charge. He's still working, right? Now, one is just the vision that he's at the right hand of the Father. So, of course, he's still in charge. But Luke gives us this, this little hint, right? So, Acts 8.1 is really similar to Acts 1.8. That's kind of cool. Uh, Acts 8.1, where he's saying, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Oh, that, that, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Much like Acts 1.8, where the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. Again, it's just a hint. It's a good, good little teaser to make you want to watch the next episode. But it's letting us know. That, that, that Jesus is carrying out the very thing that he said would happen in Acts 1.8. And it, it, it's interesting. Acts 1.8 is, is not like, you better go do this. 
It's more like a prophecy. It's like, you will be my witnesses, and this is what's going to happen. And that is exactly what's happening. And so this seeming worst-case scenario is actually being used in the providence of God to scatter them from Jerusalem because they're all hanging out in Jerusalem. Nobody in the Jerusalem church that we know of up to this point has said, you know what, we, really ought to, we should send some missionaries out to Judea. We should send some missionaries out to Samaria. You know, I think there's some crazy Greeks out there that could use the gospel. Let's go send some people out. That, no one has had that conversation. They're just, let's hang out in Jerusalem. The apostles are here. The gospel is walking around in them. We're going to hang right here in Jerusalem. And it is the stoning of Stephen that scatters them out of Jerusalem to fulfill the very prophecy that Jesus made about this is going to go from here to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. So I, I feel like I, I could stop right there to say, go home, pray. Um, and I do want you to go home and pray and ask the Lord to show you stuff in this story. Here's some things that were just kind of bubbling up for me. Um, two... Um, remembrances, so two things we need to keep remembering, and four expectations that should come out of those things we're remembering. So two remembrances, four expectations. So the, the first remembrance is remember that Jesus is, is at the right hand of God, and he cares. Remember that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father, and he cares. Um, he, that, that, that right-hand position is a position of authority. He's not up there wringing his hands going, man, the church is really struggling. I wish there was something I could do about it. Like, like he is in charge. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And he cares. How do I know he cares? Well, partly he's giving the church this vision, but also because he's standing. Now, usually when you see Jesus at the right hand of the Father, he's sitting, and it's symbolic because it symbolizes that he, his, his work is finished. He's finished the work of the cross. He's, he's paid for our sin. He's, he saved us from death. He saved us from hell. It's a once-for-all offering. It's done. He's finished. He can sit. But in this particular situation, he's up. He's standing. So most commentators would say, and I would, I would concur, that he, he's standing because he's saying, I'm there. I care. I care about this, what's happening here. I care about Stephen. I see it. I'm not up here aloof, hanging out in heaven, not knowing what my church is doing. I'm right here watching. Right? So he's at the right hand of the Father, and he cares. Another like, exalted Jesus vision that you can find in the Bible is from the book of Revelation. Uh, and there's multiple ones in there. But here's the, the opener from Revelation 1. Um, and, and this is a book, the book of Revelation is written to persecuted church, right? And so this is what John sees when he sees the exalted Christ. He says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me 
saying, fear not. I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. You see the same kind of of both and where he is the authoritative king of the universe. He's saying, I am the beginning and I am the end. I started this thing. I'm going to finish this thing. I have the keys. That's a, a symbol of authority of death and hell, right? But then he's like, but don't fear. Like literally puts his hand on John who's on the island of Patmos because of persecution. <laughs> and he's like, I'm, I'm here. I'm with you. I'm walking among the lampstands. Those are the seven churches of Asia Minor that are all experiencing persecution. And so again, remembering Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and he cares. Now, you, you may notice there's a lot of parallels between Stephen and, and Jesus. You catching up? Catch, catching that? I was trying to Feed those to you a little bit. Um, he, you know, Stephen is unjustly tried. Even some of the same accusations about speaking against the temple and tearing it down, things like that. Um, Stephen is brutally murdered. Um, Stephen asked God to receive his spirit. Uh, Stephen asked God to not hold the sin of the murderers against them. All that is very similar to Jesus. But there's also things that are not similar You don't hear Stephen saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God has not forsaken him. Because Jesus has experienced the forsaking as he took on the sin of humanity. And he took that on for Stephen. (laughs) He took that on for you and me. And so when he looks up into heaven, he doesn't see, my God, my God, you've forsaken me. He's like, look, it's Jesus. He's there. He's with us. He's standing, right? And that's because of what Christ has done for him to reconcile him with heaven. That kind of welcome into heaven is available to you too. If you're a Christian, take comfort in that, that the one who's at the right hand of the Father is your Savior, and he sees you, and he loves you. If you have not yet received that gospel, that good news that Christ has died in your place, Receive that today, and you could get the welcome that Stephen gets when he makes his way into heaven. So, remember Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Number two, remember that God the Holy Spirit has been sent to assist us with anything we need in regards to living out our call, right? Like whatever it is that God's calling us to. We have the Holy Spirit. If we're a Christian, we have the Holy Spirit that's been sent to assist us. Stephen is, he's one amazing dude, but Luke is so careful to let us know that that Stephen is who he is because he's full of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is accomplishing these great things, these extraordinary things um, through him. And the Spirit is accomplishing things like feeding widows, (laughs) And yes, the miraculous and speaking words of truth about the gospel. Like, like he's multifaceted in his ministry and all of it is coming from the power of the Spirit. Um, and so this is the second thing that we as Christians, we want to remember that the Spirit has been sent to assist us in whatever God's calling us to do. So those are the two things to remember. Now here's four things to expect based on those remembrances, right? So these are kind of in pairs. 
uh, these expectations. So one, we want to expect that God would use ordinary Christians to do extraordinary things. This is plan A. There is no plan B. God wants to use ordinary Christians in extraordinary ways. So if you're thinking of yourself, well, I'm kind of a second-class Christian, we'll let, the, we'll let the rock star Christians like really, really do a lot of great things for God, but I, that's, don't stop thinking that way, right? Like God, God's way is taking the ordinary and doing the extraordinary because it points to Him. It gives glory to God. It shows the goodness of the gospel when that happens. You also, if you're saying to yourself, well, I'm actually kind of a special Christian, right? Like, I'm pretty awesome. Stop, stop saying that, right? <laughs> I mean, if, if you do have gifts and strengths and abilities, those came from the Spirit. Those are from the Spirit. So both of those extremes really are a lack of humility, right? You think too highly of yourself. You think too, think too lowly of yourself. Both of those are very self-centered and are in need of being brought back to thinking rightly about yourself, who you are in Christ and who the Spirit is who dwells in you and can give you whatever you need for whatever ministry that God is calling you. So those are, those are two... Um, okay, so, so second expectation would be expect to depend on the Holy Spirit for what God is calling. So one thing to say, yeah, I got the Spirit and I can depend on Him, but, but then to actually do it, to actually depend on the Holy Spirit. Um, 1 Peter 4, I love this little verse, verse 11, um, because it, it's really describing church life um, in a really, like a summary. And he says, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracle of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter's saying, Whoever is speaking on behalf of God, whoever is serving on behalf of God, do it with the words that God gives you. Do it with the strength that God is giving you. Whoever, not just like the rock star Christians, everyone in the church is being assisted by the Holy Spirit to express their gifts. Now, are some people going to have more verbal gifts? Yeah, it's true. Some people are going to be more on a, on a task-oriented kind of gift. Yes, they're also going to have to speak up. We see this in the deacons, right? Stephen's a deacon. He's like speaking up. But it's all assisted by the Holy Spirit. So expect to depend on the Holy Spirit. So then the third one, which is like a second, second pair here, is expect that gospel proclamation will sometimes be met with persecution. Expect it. Expect that gospel proclamation, explicit gospel proclamation, is going to be met with persecution. Now, is it always met with persecution? No. I mean, again, we saw in, in Acts 2, you know, Peter is being pretty confrontational <laughs> with his audience, and they're like, what must we do to be saved? <laughs> and then Stephen gives the explicit gospel, and then they're like, we're going to kill you, right? So, so, but we should expect that at times this is going uh, to happen, and we just don't know when that's going to be. But I think just having that expectation prepares us 
to experience it. What's the second part of, of the, or the, or the fourth expectation, the second pair here, is expect God to use persecution to mature the church and expand the mission. So not only do we expect the persecution, but we expect that the persecution is going to mature us as a church and it's going to expand the mission of the church. Um, I haven't experienced hardly any persecution, very light persecution, um, but but I've seen even the light persecution mature the church and expand the mission. Um, And I was thinking about a couple of experiences. So one is, when we were first planting in Massachusetts, we were using a public library. We were there every Sunday, and uh, someone on the board of the library was very upset that Christians were using the public library. And, you know, the, the, the other board members explained to him, this is a, quote, public library. Anyone in the public can use it. And he was like, I don't like that. Um, and, and so then he came up with plan B, and plan B was, well, let's change the rules about the room usage that will get these Christians out of there. So they came up with new rules. So they were new rules like you can't put a banner outside, which we were the only group that ever did that. Uh, you can't use it more than like three consecutive times, and then you have to be off a week, and then you can come back after, you know, another, uh, after you've been off, you know, for one, for one week. And uh, th- these, these rules only affected us. No other group, right? And a couple things happened. One, we got a new place. We went to a, a different location, which we needed to go to anyway because we were growing and we needed a bigger space. And we just were feeling kind of secure in this public library setting and we, we needed to get moving on. So that was helpful to us that we went to a bigger place. The other thing is that some friends, or they became friends of ours, this couple, this family was reading in the paper, because all this was in the paper, that this stuff was happening, and these rules were being changed, and this guy was complaining, and, and uh, this, this family saw this in the paper, and they said, we saw that you guys were getting in trouble with the town of Amherst, and we thought, we got to check this church out. And they came to our church, and, uh, and, and became a part, a regular part of our church, and they actually were coming through Austin the other day, we, we got together with them and had, had coffee at Lazarus on airport. Um, but it, but it was like one of those moments where it was like, yeah, like, like persecution, even though that's really light, it, it can be used to mature you and to expand the mission. And another, you know, again, light, it's light persecution. I don't want to make this anything like Stephen, okay? Um, I was asked to come to uh, this dialogue about biblical sexuality, and I was going to be Basically, the Bible guy who's going to explain Romans 1, which if you know anything about that passage, is like one of the most explicit passages about homosexuality. And then this other pa- pastor was going to give kind of a, a contrasting view. And so I get there, and, you know, i am got my, got my Bible. I'm ready to roll. And uh, we flip a coin. Who's going to go first? I win the coin toss. So I'm going to go first. <laughs> And then I look over at the other pastor, and she's got a big rainbow on her, her, her shirt, and, uh, and I'm like, oh, this is not going to go well. Well, the other thing that, that, that had happened is that the, the, the LGBT community had heard about this. This was supposed to be an in-house conversation with a Christian um, community there on, on the campus there at Amherst College. And so they decided they were going to come 
and join the party. So half the room is from the LGBTQ community. Half the room is this Christian uh, organization. And again, I don't know if my heart has ever been beating as fast as it was that night. And so, you know, I stood up there with my little Bible, and I do what I do in here on Sunday morning. I talked to them about Romans 1 and explained it to them, and uh, the other pastor gets up and basically just contradicts everything that I just said, and then we do Q&A, and honestly, it went really well. I, 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 it was one of those, the Holy Spirit is superintending this experience, right? But it was, it, was, it was a hard night, and, 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 and there, there was definitely some, some hurt feelings and some things that were going on in the room, and I, that was like a Friday night, and on, on Sunday, like two days later, I see these new, new students in the room, and I'm like, huh, that's some new students, that's interesting. Hey, how you doing? How'd you hear about us? And they're like, uh, we were there on Friday night at the thing, <laughs> and we want to come and listen to you preach and be a part of your church, and we had like two or three students in the room that we're wanting to know more about the gospel because of what they experienced in that setting, right? So, again, I, I tell those stories so that when, when you're starting to, to feel the heat, you're starting to feel the blowback to not just go crawl down in a hole, but to get some anticipation, some excitement. Okay, God, what could you be doing? This is going to be a hard conversation. This could get really messy. Who knows what's going to happen? But know that the Holy Spirit will equip you for whatever you need to engage in those conversations. So expect persecution and expect God to use the persecution to mature the church and to expand mission. Um, we're reminded of these truths, honestly, when we, when we come to the communion table. We're reminded that on the night on which Jesus was betrayed, the night on which he's going to be taken into custody, he's going to be illegally tried, unjustly tried. He's going to be bludgeoned. <laughs> He's going to be whipped. He's going to go through a, literally, a hellish persecution. It's on that night that he takes bread and he breaks it and he gives it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And, and we're remembering all of that. Right? Remembering these horrific things that happened to Jesus for our sakes. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed the cup, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. He's letting them know that because of what he does on the cross, they, they can receive a rich welcome into heaven. They're not gonna have to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? because of his broken body and his shed blood and their willingness to put faith in that, they can receive a rich welcome into heaven. He also tells them, would you do this until I come back? That is a Jesus flex right there. Okay, this is Thursday night, right? This is not him instituting this after resurrection, right? This is him before the cross, and he's saying, I'm going to institute this, and I just want to let y'all know, I'm going to rise from the dead, and then I'm going to ascend to the right hand of the Father, and then I'm going to come back. And he says it with absolute confidence in that night with his disciples. I don't think they understood all that, but that's what was being meant. Right? 
And so we, we remember all of this, right? We, we remember what he went through. We remember what it means for us. We remember that we're going to do this until he returns. The ascended Lord and Savior is going to come back and he's going to get his church. Take comfort in that. Take encouragement in that. Be empowered by that this morning as we consider these things. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for this example of Stephen. That, that an ordinary Christian who's saved by grace, filled with your spirit, could do these kinds of things, could say these kinds of things, could be this kind of a, an exemplary martyr <laughs> as an example for us. And so, God, we're, we're encouraged by that, God. And, and, and I pray that as we take the bread and the cup, we would remember all that you've done to make that possible for us to be given this relationship with you of, of power and grace and, and wisdom. And I pray that is what would be happening in, in and through our church, Lord. We can't reach Austin. We, we can't become a healthy church outside of your assistance in, 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 the, in the gospel, with the gospel and also with the power of the Spirit. So, Lord, as, as we've heard the word preached, as we take this bread and cup, God, would you encourage, instruct, uh, give us all that we need, Lord, uh, to live out the call that is on our lives. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.